0: Well, just a couple days ago, May 9th, was Victory Day, which is celebrated around the world for the victory of the allied forces against Nazi Germany in World War II. And certainly the Soviet Union was – certainly the principal uh, uh, fighter there in that conflict and played the principal role in terms of bearing the brunt and uh, fighting the Nazi war machine. So brought many of those issues back into focus here. And to talk more about all of this, we are very happy to be joined here on the show by Carlos Martinez, who's an author and activist and the co-editor of Friends of Socialist China. Carlos, thanks so much for being back with us.
1: Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Good to be with you.
0: Well, it's great to have you. And of course, I will just plug this here, the end of the beginning about the history of the Soviet Union there, Lessons of the Soviet Collapse by Carlos Martinez. You can get that here in the U.S. at 1804books.com. But, uh, you know, very important issue because, you know, you raised this in the beginning of your book that the Soviet Union has many world historic achievements to its name, one of which being uh, the Soviet legacy in World War II. And I was hoping we could just start there because especially here in the United States, Uh, This is a completely untold story. All we hear about
1: is is D-Day, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, if you look at the map of Europe in 1942, right, you know, you've got practically the whole of continental Europe. It's occupied by the Nazis or it's occupied by Nazi allies. You know, Britain, where I am, was saved only by, you know, the helpful existence of the English Channel. And it was the Soviet Union principally working with the partisan movements in Europe that defeated the Nazis. You know, we don't talk about that. It's not fashionable to talk about that. It's not even, you know, in high school history curriculums. That's not taught. You know, in Britain, we seem to think World War Two was won by a slightly chaotic evacuation of Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. In the US, you think that it was the Americans getting involved at the last minute, rushing troops to Western Europe, to prevent France and Italy from going communist, that that was some kind of crucial determining factor in the war. Of course, it wasn't. It was the heroism of the Soviet Union, which lost 27 million people in the struggle to defeat fascism. And, you know, I think it's worth saying on on this program that that victory was a victory for the socialist system not just, you know, a massive country. It wasn't just a victory for people's kind of patriotism and nationalist feeling. It was a victory for socialism, for rapid industrialization, for the kind of consolidation of forces and energy um, and economic resources at a scale that would have just been inconceivable under capitalism. Like, can you even imagine that kind of preparation under the Tsarist regime? You know, factories were built to be mobile such that, When faced with invasion from the West, they were literally shifted east so that production could continue throughout the war. And it was also, I think, a victory for the socialist system in the sense that working people, ordinary people, the masses, the vast majority of the population, truly felt they had something to fight for. If you compare the fate of the Soviet Union and its actions in that war with what happened in France or what happened in Holland or Belgium or Hungary or any number of other countries... Those countries' national armies collapsed in a question of days and weeks and months, right? The Soviet Union kept fighting and furthermore won, right? So this is a big part of that, is that people were in a society that was built for them, something that working people had never had before, there or anywhere else, and they were able to make extraordinary sacrifices to defend it. And, um, you know, the whole thing has a certain tragic uh, but important resonance today in the context of what's going on in Ukraine, right? Because where so much of the fighting is taking place now in the Donbass region, that's the same towns, the same cities, the same villages, that so much of that incredibly intense fighting took place in the Second World War. Yeah, you'd, and at that, at that time, it was Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians fighting together against a fascist enemy. And now we've got this tragic twist, this tragic inversion because the Ukrainian paramilitaries who've been fighting on the front line in the Donbass against ethnic Russian people for the last nine years are literally neo-Nazis, <laughs> you, know? you know? We talk about celebrating Victory Day, um, and we think of the heroism of the Soviet people. You can't even celebrate that in Ukraine under kind of decommunization laws. You know, the the, the Soviet war, war memorials have been pulled down and replaced by statues of Stepan Bandera, who was a literal fascist. So these people, you know, the Azov Battalion, the right sector and so on, they've been recast as nationalists, but they're fascists, they're white supremacists, they're anti-Semites. So, you know, all of this, you know, the the Victory Day is a very important reminder of the, the success of the Soviet Union, as you've said, but also of what the Soviet Union and and the anti-fascist peoples of the world fought for uh, in that period.
2: You know, Carlos, something that uh, I learned a lot growing up in the United States whenever the issue of World War II came up is that if it wasn't for America, we'd all be speaking German, and so would all of Europe. Like, that's a constant. I mean, you know that too, Eugene. I'm sure you heard that at some point in school growing up and just from, like, random ignorant people. But another aspect of all of this that I think is very much connected to What you just mentioned about Ukraine today and the fact that NATO is basically supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine to do some of like the frontline fighting there against Russia is when we go back and we talk about Soviet history, I mean, part of the rise of fascism was... You know, a result of wanting, wanting, uh, of people who could fight against communists, like the US and the UK and these capitalist, uh, countries were okay with Hitler until they weren't. Can you talk a little bit about that history of the rise of fascism and the fact that it was like allowed to proliferate and in some cases encouraged? Like we always hear about, oh, Stalin made a deal with Hitler. We never really learned about you know, the West's role, the capitalist West's role in the rise of Hitler and other fascists.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. um, Fascism historically has always arisen as a response to a combination of a crisis of capitalism. And if you think about the 1920s, 1930s, capitalism faced the biggest, um, most significant and substantial crisis that it's faced today, you know, in its history, And furthermore, a rise of an alternative ideology, an ideology of the working class, i.e. communism, socialism, Marxism, which was gaining strength massively. And there's no question that the ruling classes in Europe and the US to a degree supported the rise of Mussolini, supported the rise of Hitler, supported the rise of Franco. You know, the, the, the Spanish Civil War is a perfect good, perfectly good test case for that because what side were the Americans on in the Spanish Civil War? What side were the British on? You know, they didn't side with the Democrats. They didn't side with the Republicans. Um, you know, they couldn't say it clearly because they had to maintain their posture as Democrats. But the fact is, they prevented any supplies from from going to the Republican side, and they didn't do anything about the supplies that were going from Germany and Italy to the Nationalists, to the fascist side. So, all through that period, right up until the End of the 1930s, it was, it was the clear aim and strategy of the Western powers led by Britain that Hitler should be leveraged against the Soviet Union. You know, the, the whole, uh, process of, of, of kind of pacification and, 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 uh, accepting what Hitler was doing in Poland and, and Czechoslovakia and elsewhere was about let's appease Hitler, let's give him what he wants, and let's just encourage him to go east and to fight against the Soviet Union. And then those two can exhaust each other, we'll kill two birds with one stone. Um, and yeah you know, it's very controversial to say so, but that strategy was ultimately defeated by the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. You know, if if it hadn't been for that pact, that would have been the trajectory of, of geopolitics in the late 1930s. The Germany would have gone to war against the Soviet Union in 1939 and the Soviet Union would have lost two, two and a half years of preparation, which proved to be absolutely crucial in, the, in the trajectory of that war.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's really an amazing history, and of course they never tell us how the Soviet Union was desperately trying to work with the West, uh, and only, you know, ended up where they were in 1939 because, because of the, the, the inability there, but huge piece. But one of the other things I, I want to get to as well, and you've already sort of alluded this to a degree, the, the unique aspects of the Soviet Union that allowed them to resist central planning in particular, and I was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about what the Soviets were able to do in their society by, by planning it rather than just leaving it to the market as we, we do here in the capitalist West these days.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's incredibly important for socialists and leftists to study the Soviet Union and to kind of own that experience, you know, because apart from anything else, it had some stunning successes. We're always told that socialism doesn't work, right? And we're told that the Soviet Union was a failure. Um that it was a you know, authoritarian, miserable type of society, but actually any serious analysis of history just doesn't bear that out at all. For one thing, you know the peoples of the territories of the Soviet Union experienced an absolutely unprecedented improvement in their living standards. Feudalism was wiped out, which is not a small thing, right? Um, the Soviet Union. Emerged from being a pretty backward, you know, compared to Western Europe, compared to North America, Russia at that time was a, was a backward state. And within a couple of decades, it was a superpower. It was one of two superpowers. It was the second biggest economy in the world. It became a global leader in multiple areas of science and technology. It became a pioneer, a pioneer in arts and culture. For the first time in Russian history, famine stopped being a problem the Soviet Union built the first comprehensive welfare state, the first country to have free education at all levels, the first country to have free health care and a guarantee of housing available to everyone. Universal literacy was achieved in a matter of two decades. It was even, and this is, I think, really surprising to a lot of people, the USSR was a trailblazer on gender equality. You know, where did women first get the right to vote? Where did they first get Freedom to divorce. Where did they first get, you know, the right to abortion and bodily autonomy? What country was it that innovated on childcare provision and socialization of domestic labor? It was the Soviet Union. Actually, the, you know, there's an interesting statistic. By the 1970s, there were more female doctors in the Soviet Union than in the whole, you know, rest of the world combined. Mm. It was. An affirmative action state. It was an anti-racist state. You know, racial and ethnic discrimination were banned, were made punishable offences long before that was the case in the US or Britain. You know, at that time, in the 1930s, African-Americans faced what in the United States? Lynching and segregation. So you had very important civil rights leaders and black American activists such as W.B. Du Bois or Paul Robeson or Langston Hughes Going to the Soviet Union and saying things like, you know, this is the first place that I've been, that I'm treated with dignity and respect as a human being. The unemployment problem was solved. You know, capitalism still hasn't found a way to solve the unemployment problem or the housing problems. But in the Soviet Union, they were solved in, you know, humanity's very first socialist experiment. Right. And as we've been talking about, you know, fascism was defeated. They built a country that was sufficiently strong, sufficiently advanced, united, and determined that it could defeat the Nazi armies. And, you know, Victory Day, as I say, is a reminder of that, of, of how much humanity owes the Soviet people and how much they contributed to to creating the world that we live in today.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, there we go <laughs> for a second there, Carlos. You are back with us Woo! now, but I really appreciate this. I, sorry, Ronnie, I cut you off.
2: No, I was just cheering for the little, like, box rearrangement.
0: Yes, place, no, no, which... absolutely <laughs> crucial. Well, Carlos, as always, we really appreciate you having uh, having you with us. I just have to plug it again. The End of the Beginning, Lessons of the Soviet Collapse. Whether you know a lot or a little about the Soviet Union, I'm telling you this book is fascinating, very important. You should study it. You should read it. You can get it from Left Word Books. And if you're in the U.S., you can go to 1804books.com, and you can get it from there. And the footnotes, I will say, are also an excellent guide to Soviet history. So as always, Carlos Martinez, really appreciate having you with us. Friends of Socialist China also couldn't recommend it any higher. Thanks for giving us some of your time here in the Freedom Side. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. See you soon.